Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The Late Lunch, brought to you by Blackstone Motors Summer Sales Event. Get low as can be APR, zero deposit and finance arranged within four hours. There's never been a better time to get to Blackstone Motors, Dundalk, Drogheda or Cavan. You're very welcome to Thursday afternoon's Late Lunch on LMFM Radio. Let me tell you what's happening this afternoon. We're going to be having a look at this new festival announced yesterday for the North East Apoka Festival. We're heading to East Coast Cookery School with Tara Walker and it's fish all the way today. Tom Holden is with us. He's from the North East and he's the course designer for the Dublin Horse Show, which begins next week. And of course, we have our signature furniture giveaway on the show today, I have three phrases for you. I'm looking for one word that's missing from each phrase to do with the house or home. And the prize today is a four foot six, 800 pocket sprung mattress. It's worth 369 euro. Nice prize today. Give you a first clue in a few moments time. My first guest today made sure her family were well fed with protein, but from the meat of pheasants, partridge, ducks, pigeons and deer. A little different for sure, but even more so considering Rachel Carey was at one stage in her life a vegetarian and the lady herself is on the line to have a chat with me. Good afternoon to you, Rachel. Afternoon. Thanks Thanks for taking... Not at all. I'm delighted to talk to you this afternoon on the show. Just on the vegetarian thing, what stage of your life were you a vegetarian? Age? So I was seven years old when I first... um came home and proudly announced to mum and dad that I wanted to be a vegetarian and not eat meat. And what prompted that at seven? So I think I'd gotten to the age where, um, you know, I'd started actually realising pork was actually a pig and, you know, beef came from a cow. Um, Just at that age where I'd started kind of discovering what I was eating. And were you out of step with the rest of your family? Had anyone else been vegetarian before? Oh, goodness, no. Um, No, so I'm from Yorkshire, and um, I suppose back then, whatever mum put on the table, uh, you had to eat it. You know, you couldn't be fussy um, in those days. You know, mum was quite frugal. Um, You know, she had three kids to feed on a budget, so she couldn't kind of mess around, you know, with different diets and picky kids, I guess. Many people, I could tell you, Rachel, would hanker back for those days today, <laughs> let me say. And most of us were reared in similar families as well as to yours in Yorkshire. How long did the vegetarian phase last for in your life? So I, I started 
stuck to it for around five years um and I was quite active when I was when I was younger um so I was doing a lot of athletics and dancing um mum put us in dancing shows and everything and I became quite poor at one stage and I actually um was diagnosed with shingles which is quite an unusual um illness for a child to have um and the doctor actually did blood tests and found I was anemic so I was lacking in a lot of iron so it was that that actually ceased the vegetarianism Okay, so back you go to eating meat and proteins and fish and things like that again. And you head then into your teenage years and you mature and become a young lady and a young woman. And you're back to eating meat. Is that the scenario? That's what it was like then? Yeah, um, what I will say and will admit, um, and I suppose this was the naive child in me, but actually shows how kind of primal and innocent the the whole game meat movement is, Um so my dad actually took me hunting rabbits when I was eight years old and I would eat the rabbit stew that mm. mum made from that, even being a vegetarian. <laughs> so I suppose I wasn't wholly a true devout vegetarian after all. Okay, so that was always there. And let me tell you, I had a lot of rabbits in my day myself as well, which we hunted in our own family and very much appreciated, I have to say, they were. Now... Here's the thing. You have some story today because y- y- you have children of your own. How many is in your family? I just have one okay. little boy who's, well, I say he's literally six foot and 13 years old and plays <laughs> rugby. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's always your little boy, isn't he, as well? But obviously there's, and, and uh, there's three of you then in the house, is it? Yeah. Yeah, just the three of us. Okay. And... It's a big step, you know, from uh, going back to eat meat and enjoying meat again after 12 years of age to today where you are feeding this family of yours. And I'll tell people again, uh, pheasants, partridge, ducks, pigeons and deer, they're all game. So when did you take up hunting on a more full-time basis? So I started clay pigeon shooting, first of all, Um Obviously, I'd hunted rabbits with dad as a kid, but kind of, you know, we grew out of that. Um, And in my mid-early 20s, I'd started clay pigeon shooting just as a new hobby. Um, And it was that that actually started then the transition into um, shooting pigeons. And I was a single mum at the time, um, and I had a a very small um, plot of land and a a little bit of a small holding, I guess you could say, kept a few chickens, um, And I was in the field one day and I was sick of the pigeons kind of coming in the field and, you know, eating, eating the food I'd put out for the wild birds on the table. And, and, um, the farmer had had a word with me and said, oh, you know, we've got a bit of a pigeon problem, you know, damaging the crop. If you're ever around with the shotgun, you know, could you scare a few off? Um, not really thinking about the, you know, the, oh, the food side of it really at that point um and i was up there in my field one day and i actually shot a pigeon and a rabbit um took them home and it was everything kind of came flooding back that i'd learned as a child so from my dad teaching me how to skin and butcher a rabbit i suppose it was like riding a bike and there i was um in my little bungalow as a single mum skinning and butchering rabbits and preparing this pigeon and it was just as simple as that ended up cooking them and one thing on my mind was wow well that just cost me seven pence the cost of the cartridge um and 
the vegetables which I got from the neighbour next door. So that meal to me as a single parent was free. Um, and it was a really kind of a bit of an epiphany for me. Um, and I was started thinking about wild game and how much healthier it is and how much more ethical it was um, for me to see those animals in the natural environment. And it just went on from there. And I, it was just a lifestyle from then on that I thought, wow, this is this is really nice. You know, this is really natural and a wholesome way to live. So no dependence uh, in this last year, no trips to the butchers or the supermarkets for your meat and the guise of protein, all harvested from uh, wild animals on the land. Yes, I mean, we. I, I've been guilty for going to the local farm shop if I've, um, as most working mums do, you know, forgot to, you know, you've had a busy day, you forgot to grab something out of the freezer when we're not quite in game season. Um, and I have bought chicken from, I try and, if I do have to supplement my game diet, I try and buy from a local farm shop where mm. I can see the welfare standards of the animals. Um, but I'll be honest with you, it just doesn't taste the same either as game now, so... We just we steer clear of it. We just stick to what we can what we can procure ourselves. You obviously have um, within um, you know your own opinions and feelings about the rearing of stock animals or intense rearing of fowl. As we know, there's been an awful lot about this. You know uh, how it's they're packed into sheds and reared like that intense rearing of pigs as well. You know you have cattle; they have the roaming in the land and they're confined as well. Is that part of, you know, your thought process in relying on game and wild creatures? Absolutely. Um, It was, you know, back in, rewinding right back to me becoming vegetarian as as a child, you know, it was the kind of advent of factory farming back then when it had really, you know, begun to take hold in in this country. And one of one of the permissions that we used to actually hunt rabbits on was an old um, cattle, a dairy farm, but it had also had an abattoir um, on site. So this was back when British farmers, you know, really took care of that side themselves. So where you saw the cows, you know, free range cows and the abattoir on site, that all soon began to change. Um, And as I say, with it, the advent of factory farming, the welfare conditions and everything, it's all part and parcel for it. And I just think it's something that we really need to get back to in this country, you know, support British farmers and support, you know, better welfare standards um, all round, really. So for me right now, still being able to enjoy meat and enjoy the protein and the nutritional value of meat, but taking that responsibility myself and actually seeing what I'm eating and, and knowing what's on your plate as well. I mean, you know, was it a couple of years ago we were all eating horse meat and had absolutely no idea? Mm. Absolutely. Know? People are having the lunches listening to us today at this particular time and they're thinking, oh my God, Jerry Pigeon. <laughs> Pheasants, partridge, ducks. What are you up to on the show this afternoon? And deer as well. Well, I eaten all of those and I thoroughly enjoyed them and would eat them at any stage as well and I'm, I know you are bringing out a new cookbook called Game and Gathering. I'm really looking forward to reading and having a copy of this book later in the year but you can verify this can't you? It's wonderful food isn't it? Yeah and you know what I think traditionally a game has been thought of as you know there's so many myths surrounding it you know there's a misconception that it's too expensive 
you know, that it's really, really rich in flavour, um, that it's hard to get hold of. And part of me bringing out the book and kind of really passionately promoting it is to dispel those myths and say, hey, you know, you don't even have to be a hunter or go out there and shoot. Not everyone, you know, has, has the ability to do that or they might not have the land or the permission. Um, and not everyone wants to go out and hunt their own meat. That's not what I'm saying here. But there's so much game um, out there. You can you can even get game delivered to your door now. Um, you know, online, you can go on the, online and order local butchers are more than happy to stock game. It's out there and it's available to everyone. And it really is, you know, a more ethical, uh, like I say, food source, meat source. So it um, ticks all of my boxes and just want to put that out there for other people, really. Yeah, that's why I'm talking to you today. I want to put it out there as well because... I can empathise with you and what, what you do. And I've been that soldier in my life. And, and you know what's happened, uh, Rachel, let me tell you, with affluence here in Ireland as well, has come adrift from these pursuits as well. You know, and I, I see where I live. There's an abundance of rabbits. That wouldn't have been years ago. People would have been at them, you know, and hunting them as well. Pigeons, uh, there's so many of them in the country also. Fantastic food. And uh, you, you are harvesting this. You have no qualms. You know, people would say, oh, I couldn't shoot anything. What do you say to people when, when they say that to you? I'm sure you get it. Do you know, it's, it's exactly that. It's nature's larder. It's farming the wild, as a good friend of mine calls it. And as I said, not everyone does want to go out there and hunt. And I completely respect that. I, I wholly respect it. Um, but some people do and still do. And I think that connection to the land, when you're actually out there enjoying, you know, wildlife and, and the land as well, you do think about it more. Um, so for me, hunting's got me thinking more about conservation as a whole. So, you know, I'm doing more to plant, pollinating plants in my garden and making habitat for wildlife and making sure it's still there. So whereas people who don't like the idea of shooting animals or think anyone who, you know, could go out there and shoot animals don't actually love them, what I found is the opposite. So anyone invested in nature and actually drawing value from it in terms of, you know, it's actually sustaining my family. You do want to take care of it more. You don't want to see, you know, new housing developments, um, you know, encroaching on, on nature and wild places because, you know, you enjoy it and you draw value from it. So it's it's the opposite sometimes of what people think. I know it's a paradox um, and you're not trying to wipe out any species. You know, you're not going out there and saying, you know, I want to, blast all the pigeons away today you don't you want there to be a sustainable constant supply because it's you know you're utilizing it it's all sustainable yeah and you uh what you uh hunt and gather yourself you use and you're really uh you stress that and uh, in your job uh, i hope you don't mind me saying you're an environmental impact assessor and you you, uh, work in the whole area of food waste my god don't we waste so much food today rachel let me come back to a couple of things before we finish i'm sure there are many vegetarian vegetarians and vegans listening today maybe they've switched off i don't know well that's the prerogative as uh, as always but you feel you have more in common with them than sets you apart. Can you explain that? Yeah, well, I mean, there are different reasons people become vegans or vegetarians. Um, One of the reasons is animal welfare. So as I've explained already, one of my reasons for eating game is the animal welfare conditions of factory farming. Um, Another reason is health. 
So game meat is actually healthier. It's got more protein in it. Um, they've eaten game animals have eaten a wild, a, a more wilder and natural diet, um, and also they've got less fat and less cholesterol than, say, chicken um, or you know more intensively farmed meat and beef. Venison's got much more protein and less fat than beef. So you've got the health benefits there, and then also environmental benefits. So a lot of people become vegan or vegetarian because they want to negate the negative impact of, you know, say cattle farming. But what we've actually found is more traditional farming um, is actually better for the environment than vast crop growing. Um, you negate the need for fungicide, pesticide, herbicides. So it's not, I don't think that it should be vegans, vegetarians and hunters or anyone making a lifestyle choice pitting themselves against one another. I think everyone just got a responsibility to make sure that our choices are ethical and, you know, don't have, you know, have the least impact on the environment possible. Um, so, and also, if we didn't manage deer um, or any population of animal in this country um, to a sustainable level that the environment can withstand, if you left deer, you know, they have no natural predators, to, um, you know, I'm just looking out of my window now at the woodlands behind me. If I didn't manage the roe deer population in there, they would destroy the habitat, they'd browse the new plants, there wouldn't be any habitat for ground nesting birds or songbirds, um, you know. So you you have to keep on top of the population anyway. So it's there's the environmental benefit of that side that people don't usually consider. And, you know, people have opinions that never have been to the countryside in their lives. They don't understand the way it works. And you've put it so brilliantly uh, to me this afternoon. I'm going to leave it there for the moment. I want to mention your new book. It's called Game and Gathering by Rachel Carey, and it's on the way. Get a copy to us and I'll talk to you again when I have it because I'll have time to have a look at it and come back to you on that. And may I say one thing before I go? Thank you for joining me. And no wonder your son is what six foot something at 13 years of age with all this wonderful food why wouldn't he be rachel ah thank you so much for having me not at all lovely to talk to you today and we'll talk again i promise you thanks for taking our call bye-bye rachel thanks Jerry. bye 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 that's rachel carry there interesting woman 125 pigeons 80 pheasants and partridge 40 ducks and four deer last year and the one of the healthiest families on the planet now, as you know, on late launch, we've been talking consistently over the last number of months, probably a year at this stage, about the difficulties people in the leisure business are experiencing with insurance. And another story for you today, this time to do with a pet farm in Meath. Glyn Evans is on the line. He keeps alpacas at his farm and more besides near Boards Mill in Trim. And he's in difficulty. Glyn, thank you for joining me on the show. Tell us uh, about your pet farm, what you do there and how long you've been at this. We've been open for a couple of years now doing um, farm tours. And uh, we bring families uh, and then kids with learning difficulties and um, just members of the public in to visit the animals and we take people around and explain all the animals to them and we try and uh, get across conservation uh, efforts that we're doing there as well but uh, unfortunately as of yesterday we had to uh, close the doors um, due to the insurance so we were trying to get insurance um, again this year but because of Brexit uh, all of the insurance companies that were um, willing to quote me were pulling out of the business. And 
it's not a question of the cost of insurance in this case, because your insurance, to be fair, is not that expensive. How much does it cost you a year? It was about 370 last year, so it wasn't uh, cost prohibitive at all. Um, but that was because it was going through a UK-based company. Um, the Irish companies uh, didn't even want to give me a quote. So you're now in the situation where you have no options at all, you're telling me, that there's no way of getting insurance anywhere. You can't use any other company in the UK or abroad, no? Uh, no, just because of Brexit. It, they're, they're not interested in insurance at all. Irish-based, no. That's a non-runner as well. With the Irish-based ones, I rang around and uh, it was either a no or uh, one company wanted me to put in um, fencing for so people couldn't actually touch or handle the animals. The whole thing that we set it up was so that uh, families and kids and stuff would be able to handle the animals and get a, an actual connection with the animals. But uh, they wanted me to put paddocks in so that um, I couldn't, uh, that people couldn't ha- um, handle the animals. And uh, I've after putting eight grand's worth of fencing in last year, so I don't have the uh, the available cash at the moment to put more paddocks in. But it also takes away from what we set up to do anyway. So uh, we just made the decision that we'll um, uh, knock it on the head and uh, shut it down to the public and we're going to rehome some of the more expensive to keep animals um, and then we're going to hang on to the alpacas and um, uh, the rhea and uh, hopefully then we'll be able to find good homes for the for the rest of them. Now we, we've had, had a lot of interest now in the last couple of days um, from people that are willing to take on the animals so that's good. So I just have to do home checks and stuff and make sure that um, uh, everywhere is suitable for them. I think this is really sad, may I say, that you've had to close. There's not a big amount of money involved. It's a sort of a a situation where, you know, you're right, it defeats the purpose of the essence of, of what you do there as well, this additional fencing. And, you know, what, what are you talking about? Up to 90 animals that have to be rehomed, yeah? Uh, well... Uh, that's 90, including the alpacas, the rhea and the owl. Um, so uh, that group of animals are going to stay on the farm. But then um, uh, the rest of them will have to be uh, rehomed. Now, for the most part, um, uh, they'll be able to go in their groups to different farms. Uh, so at least they're, they're not going to be uh, broken up or anything like that. But um, it is a bit of a pain, but uh, at least uh, we have people that are willing to take them on and look after them the same way we do. And uh, part of the condition of that is I'd be um, randomly calling in as well uh, just to make sure that they're being looked after properly. And it's fair to say that children have come to you from all over the place and children who've had difficult lives and they arrive in and by the time they're leaving, you you can see a a change even in that short time in them, yeah? Oh, yeah. Uh, We've had uh, kids um, uh, that were non-verbal and... Uh, by the time they were leaving, they were saying like one or two words to me, and uh, the parents are amazed because the uh, the kids don't normally talk to anyone. They barely even talk to the parents, and uh, you end up uh, seeing that the parents end up going quiet because um, they're just in shock. So trim alpacas, your your business there is no more as of today, and there's no going back on this, Glyn. Well, if uh, if we're able to sort out insurance, so I'm still going to be looking into it, um, but if we're able to sort out insurance, then um, uh, we may be opening again, but it'll probably be in about a year's time. Um, so now that uh, um, this has come about, we're we're going to uh, try and 
do up the farm and do a bit more work there and then if we can get insurance next year uh, the condition of people taking the animals is that we can take them back if we're able to get cover. It's another dark day for leisure and a particular type of leisure you provide and bringing so much joy to so many and it's just like this it's over because of an insurance situation and really at this stage it's time it really is time for people to get their heads together and sort this out because it's just not you there are so many others being impacted at this time as we speak i hope that this will work its way out eventually but it's to be no more with trim alpacas for the moment wish you well and hope you get the good homes for all of the animals you have there and thanks for joining us glenn on the show today thank you very much Signature Furniture Competition, listen up. Yes, they're having their annual stock disposal sale. It ends Monday, bank holiday Monday at 6 o'clock. Sofas, chairs, dining beds, mattresses, occasional furniture. Call in to Signature Furniture, Dramiskin, Castle, Bellingham, and they look after you, I promise you. The prize today, it's a wonderful one. It's a four foot six, 800 pocket sprung mattress worth €369. Euro. It'll be delivered to you. You'll never get out of bed again. You know the format. I need three words from you. Three clues. Wait till you get them all. Send the three words in then, and you're in the hat. Here's the first one. I need a word related to the house or home. Old Mother Hubbard went to the... To fetch her poor doggy a bone. What's the word I'm looking for? Old Mother Hubbard went to the... To fetch her poor doggy a bone. That's your first word. Two more clues to come. Stay with us on Late Lunch. Second clue in the signature furniture competition. And I'm not giving them all again. I'm not going back on them today. There's a real good prize up for grabs this afternoon. It's a four foot six, 800 pocket sprung mattress worth €369 euro delivered to your doors. I said you won't want to wake up in the mornings at all. It's that lovely. Here's your second clue for the second word. Don't get in touch with me till you get the third one. It'll be coming up in a wee while. This is a sports phrase, really. They threw everything at them, but the kitchen... What's the word I'm looking for? The last word in that sentence. They threw everything at them, but the kitchen what? That's your second word. One more to come. For Tom Holden, the saying horses for courses really does ring true in his role as course designer at the prestigious Dublin Horse Show, which starts next week. And believe it or not, he's hoofed it over here during a very busy time to join me on Late Lunch. Tom, you're so welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thanks for joining me. How long are you at this job of course design? I'm probably course designing for over 20 years at this stage. Uh, You start at a sort of low level and you go around you assist uh, more experienced people till you get a bit of experience and and get a feel for the whole thing and then there's a process where you go through exams local regional exam national exam senior national exam and then when you get so far you you can go on forward into the FEI which is the world governing body for sport they have two or three levels as well uh, for course designers so you go uh, go through their their process you have to assist at sort of big international shows and show that you're interested and so that you know your stuff and then you're examined at seminars. And you have gone through all that process and you're a man who can design, yes, courses for the very top shows in the world. I've been lucky to be at some of the very good shows. Um, in 2017, I was the main course designer on Dublin Horse Show, which is one of the top three or four shows in the world. So to be the main course designer for that, that was a huge, uh, that was a huge plus for me. It was a huge honour uh, to get that gig. Uh, and thankfully it went well and, and um, hopefully I might get it some other time in the future uh, but I've also built in, in different countries I've, I've, I've designed courses in in, 
in Spruce Meadows, famous Spruce Meadows in Canada and places like that, yeah. Where all the top show jumpers in the world gather and, and perform as well. Um, what Was it special? 2017 it was when you w- were given the honour of designing that uh, course in the RDS Simmons Court. W- when you got that, was there a, is there a pressure with that? Oh, yeah. There was a lot of pressure with it. Um, in February of the year, uh, February uh, 2017, I actually read cold feet and I said no I'm not going to do this I'm going to give this job up and give it on to somebody else and somebody happened to ring me around that time and congratulate me on getting the job And but remember to enjoy it they said remember to enjoy it and that stuck with me a little bit and then I started doing my preparations and the more I worked on doing my preparatory course plans etc etc the more I felt comfortable with it so when it happened and I did I really really enjoyed the week it was a fantastic week um and then to build it, to design the courses for the for the Aga Khan Trophy was just special. The pinnacle for you, yeah, absolutely. When you said about this, I suppose in my mind, I think of two things with show jumping: a course to be challenging to the horses and the riders, but fair. Is that is that what you 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 keep with you? Fair is the most important thing of all. Why? Because uh, the riders put an awful lot of effort into, even at national level in this country, riders put an awful lot of effort into, first of all, learning their own craft, learning their own trade, but also uh, preparing horses to go show jumping. And, when, and the higher up the levels, the more preparation has gone into that horse. Uh, the last thing a rider wants then is for some course designer to put something stupid in a course which will set the horse back three months, six months, a year, maybe five years in their training or destroy the horse completely. So the questions we ask are always fair, they're always doable. At least we try. Uh, so they're, they're fair and they're doable, uh, and that they don't punish a horse or punish a rider. So that the experience, even if they do have faults in the round, it's still a good experience for the horse. The wall. I remember growing up and Harvey Smith and these guys. Do you remember that? At I think it was Hickstead, wasn't the Grand Prix? They used to raise the wall up and try uh, them to get get them to jump the highest possible. Riders don't particularly like that, and it, you need a specialist horse. Way back in the day. You, the same horse would win a speed competition and win the puissance on Saturday and then come and jump in the Grand Prix on Sunday. But nowadays you need a specialist horse that's going to go down. Horses are much, uh, much bred much more differently now and they're bred a lot of carefulness is bred into them. So it, it takes a, a, a brave horse to run down to that wall. It's a, it's a super crowd pleaser f- uh, as a competition. It's on Saturday afternoon, Saturday evening Dublin Horse Show and Dublin Horse Show is, is, is sold out the, the stands are sold out on Friday and Saturday afternoon for the puissance. They're the only two days it's sold. You won't so get it. To pe- you. People yeah. still love it. Oh yeah. Oh, but you it, love it. Why don't you? The challenge to the horse, but the speed ones. I have to say, the wall ride is certainly the one that everyone talks about. But you talk about the the speed. You know those challenges at speed to get over everything and not knock anything over. Yeah, that's uh, the, the more speed you put into it, the more the rider has to be accurate in, in giving the horse enough space in front of the fence, getting the horse to the right place and getting the horse to the fence with enough speed to win the competition or whatever, but not so much that the horse can't jump the fence when he gets there. So that's a huge amount of rider skill. Do you know when you set up your course, I, I take it the riders come and they do, they walk or they, they look at it beforehand, they're out there and they, they see it. Do you, do you get feedback at that stage or is the course the course? 
you you post a course plan right. outside in the pocket a half an hour before the competition starts. All right. So as the riders get a that. chance to look at that. Yeah. And then they get a chance to get maybe five, seven minutes to walk the course, depending on the competition. They get five or seven minutes to walk the course. In in that walk they will they will look at the approach to the first fence and see what suits their horse best. They'll walk the related distances and see is it four strides or five strides or six or seven strides between the two fences. They'll walk the combination fences to see how best they will will cope with that and how they, they will suit their own horse because all horses are different. They're all There's big ones, small ones, long ones, short ones. Uh, so the rider will make a plan to suit their horse and, and on the day. And the course is the course. There's no changing that. What about afterwards? Does anyone ever come to you? You ever hear from the riders afterwards and they say, listen, Tom, job well done. You, no, you seldom hear that. You if you hear nothing, <laughs> you, you you haven't been too bad. <laughs> is that the? Is that it? Silence is golden. Silence is golden. When they when when they give out to you, it's, then you're in trouble. You're in trouble. <laughs> and would they give out? Yeah. Ah, some of them will complain, but it's generally, it's generally they work hard. Most of the riders in this country work really, really hard. There's a lot of pressure on them to produce results. There's a lot of pressure on them to produce results for for themselves, for the horse, for their owners who are paying uh, you know big money to keep these horses, and in or around the time that big competitions riders get very into themselves and some of them handle it really well and some of them get really nervous and some of them go into a little shell and some of them get quite aggressive about it so I, I would in this country I would know most of them now and I, you know I can see the guys coming who I have to be aware of I can see them strutting across the road and I said okay what have I done wrong now but but in general uh, I get on well with most of them they're, 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 they work really hard they're very hard workers uh, and mostly very respectful and you know they enjoy mm. their sport and and we got on well it's interesting to to hear that from yourself how it actually works on a day you have then to change courses what about five or six times depends if we have five competitions yeah. in the five different courses if you're jumping outside on grass uh, the grass will will um Will, the, the, the takeoff area in the landing area will deteriorate over a period of time so you may have to move fences during a competition right. but generally you try and get from the start to the end of the competition without having to move any fences then you will move fences, change the course make it a little bit easier for lesser competitions or make it a little bit more difficult for the Grand Prix or the higher level competition or the competition with more prize money so you change the course to suit the competition and you change the course then to suit if it's for five year old horses it's a very simple course, straightforward. For four-year-old horses, even more simple than for Grand Prix, you add in more difficulty into it. More height, more width, but also more sort of technical difficulty. What about the water jump? Water jump, we don't use it very much in this country. Um, we don't use it very much. only jumped really, I suppose, in, in, in an odd Grand Prix. Mm. And Dublin Horse Show has jumped on Friday for the Nations Cup and Sunday for the Grand Prix. Uh, but it's, a, it's, a, it's an important part of the sport. It is something that people understand, that horse jumping wide. Uh, I would hate to see it ever gone out of the sport. Um, but riders need to train their horses to jump it in a good way and um, and not to be afraid of it and, and to actually respect it, but also not be afraid of it. Mm. So that's the difficulty. If we don't, we don't maybe use it enough in this country. Mm. Is there a certain type of horse for show jumping? You know, and you talk about physique, you know, big nifty in between what what makes you know what type of horse makes it the best jumper the best jumper can be 16 hands or 18 hands really a huge amount of it is 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 the mentality of the horse 
than temperament of the horse and whether they're trainable. Then they need to have what's referred to as blood. They need to have a good bit of thoroughbred blood in them to give them stamina. They need to be powerful. They need also to have a good mind that they understand to jump the top rail of the fence, the top pole, and that they, you can train them to do that and, 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 and that the horse is not afraid of it, that he, he'll go down there, he'll enjoy it, but at the same time not not uh, not worry about it. So all those things come into it. So you can have, you can have the, one of the best horses we ever had in, in, in Europe was, uh, it was only 15-2 and he won two two gold European gold medals. Which horse was that? Uh, now you have... Have I put you on the spot? Yeah, Pierre, Pierre Durand was the rider. And yeah. uh, I can't think Look of Look, if it comes to you, fine. Yeah. I hear what you're saying. But that, that's a Jabba small... Ho- Sorry? Jabaloop. There you go. Good man yourself. Jabaloop. He's only 15-2. Small. And yeah. The horse that won the World Championship in Dublin and individually in 1982, I think it was, was 18 hands. Huge horse. Mm. What so a difference. They come in different sizes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, we know of the Keen O'Connors and the top riders and many more in this country as well. You've seen them coming through from, you know, teenage years and, and growing up. What's it like? Is there is there a good crop? Every year you think, oh, there's the, those riders are going to weigh off abroad now. What are we going to do next year? And every year new riders come along, like really, really hugely talented riders. Every year you'll see two or three coming along. And uh, with the, they just ride horses like they were born on horses. They just have such a, a fantastic talent. I think it's just... I think it's an Irish thing. I think it's bred into us from years back. And so many... Like, I, I stood in the ring on Sunday last in Cork and we had the the previous Children on Horses European champion, the current junior show jumping champion and a past world champion in the one competition in the same field. Like, that's incredible. Yeah, that is yeah. really encouraging to hear that. Besides what you do in the layout of the courses all over the world and in Dublin, um, you're a level two coach and you train people from 12 up into the 50s to jump? Yeah, I have to. Here's I have the to thing. To, it's competitive coaching. So these are people who ride already okay. and, uh, and jump already and I help them maybe do it a little bit safer, a little bit better okay. to improve their horses. So uh, these are people who are in the saddle already and yeah, are making mostly, the way. Yes, yeah, yeah. I don't. I don't teach people to start how to ride. Okay, it's people who are comp- competing already. That's just a question. I, I've never ridden a horse in my life. <laughs> is it? Is it ever too late to take up and be taught? Never, never. And it's a. It's a. When you're involved with horses, you'll realise the the, the 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 connection that's there, the connection with the human and the horse. It's it's incredible. And when you see what people involved in therapeutic riding, the results that they can achieve by using horses and putting people with different disabilities and different sort of problems up on horses and how they can improve their quality of life. It's incredible. Mm. You are a Drogheda man from the yeah. Dublin Road. Um, how did you get into horses in the first place? Randomly, um, a couple of friends from from Leytown. We used to spend a lot of time in Leytown and Bettison when I was growing up and a few of them said we're going out horse riding to, uh, at the time it was a place called Kiltalla. Otto Nielsen was the man. And it was out near Grange Bellew, and so we'd go out and have a bash at it one day. Vicky Dwyer and Des Smith and a few of those guys, and uh, Declan Brannigan, and we went out. And we, I look, two years later, I was still doing it, and I kept doing it. For, for <laughs> a lot years. of things in life, Tom, that yeah. people get into, they nearly stumble, you know, into something, and yeah. and, and 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 away you went from there. Yeah, you are a health and safety consultant, I know, yeah. for for your work, but does this take up a lot of time as well? Which 
to the teaching, the coaching, it the does. course design. It, it, it does, but mostly it's weekend stuff or evening stuff. So you, a lot of the teaching I would do would be in the evenings, and the course design is mostly weekends, Saturdays and Sundays in this country. Uh, sometimes in the middle of the week, but but I I, I work for myself, so yeah, I can I can I can yes, make you it can fit. work I that can as well. Yeah. So you nearly have a passion that that could be full time. It could be nearly full time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 No, it is, but it is a passion. That's the yes. word. It is a passion. I love doing it. I've always loved doing it since I started. So the show is next week. Of course, it's always uh, August Bank Holiday and, and onwards into the following weekend. And you're involved again this year. Yeah, I, I'm the main course designer in Simmons Court Arena, which for all the national classes. So we have one two eight ponies, one three eight ponies, one four eight ponies, four year old horses, five year old horses, six year old horses. So the full range of national competitions. They all have to qualify to go to the RDS. You just don't enter. Mm. You have to qualify. So there'll be regional qualifiers sort of in May and June. Excuse me. And uh, then they qualify to go to the RDS. So then in, in Simmons Court, we have two qualifying rounds. And then the top 12 in each category goes forward to, to the main finals in the main arena on the Saturday and the Sunday. So you're up there in situ for the next week? Yeah. <laughs> Health and safety has to wait. <laughs> Why <Yeah>. not? <laughs> when you love something with a, with a passion like you do. Look, I just wanted to touch base with you today on the show and, and tell people that one of our own from the North East, Tom Holden, is an integral part of this Dublin show and many shows all over the world as well. Thanks for joining us and taking time because I know you're busy on the run into this and I wish you a successful Dublin show. Many more to come and with your work all over the world as well. Thanks, Tom. Thank you. Thank you for joining me. Four foot six, eight hundred pocket sprung mattress delivered to your door worth three hundred and sixty nine euro from Signature Furniture, Dramiskin Castle Bellingham. Their big sale is on at the moment. Their annual stock disposal sale. Give them a shout. They look after you. It ends Monday at six o'clock. Here's your third clue, and I'm not giving the other two. Here is the third clue. Get texting after this or WhatsApp us to 086-1800-658 with the three words we're looking for, your name and details and your contact number. Here it is. Night, night. Sleep tight. Don't let the something bugs... <laughs> the something bugs bite. OK, here it is again. One more time. Night, night. Sleep tight. Don't let the something bugs bite. What's that word I'm looking for in there before bugs? What is the word? It's related to house or home. You have them all now. 086-1800-658 by WhatsApp or text. Away you go. Louise, you have something to tell me you're after coming across in the last few minutes. I'm after frightening the outie, am I? Well... Tell them. You're after just whispering it to me there in the heads. Tell yeah, we them. just saw an interesting uh, story there on... Um a lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. 
Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Social media about a seven-year-old Indian boy with an unusual medical condition. Okay. And he's had 526 teeth removed from his mouth. And we all know you not exactly enamoured over dentists, Jerry. Well, I've I had bad experience many moons ago of extraction, and when I hear extraction, I just you what know happened? the way someone they say someone walked over your grave. You know that shiver you yeah. get up and down at the back of your spine. How many teeth? Five hundred and twenty-six. It's, it was seemingly just a, a unique medical c- case and a first of its kind. The teeth just keep coming in the in, in the gums or whatever, and they have to keep removing them. Is that it? Yeah. Oh. The the child had been complaining of swelling on the right side of his lower jaw since the age of three, so Ooh. he's now seven. And then medical investigation by surgeons revealed the presence of a large growth containing all this teeth. Poor devil. Poor little fella. Yeah, it's not easy. Mm-hmm. It's, it's one Think thing of all that the money he'll get from the tooth fairy. <laughs> 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 like winning the lotto, wouldn't it? It really would. Oh my, oh my, yeah. Whenever, I don't know of anyone else, but I had a bad experience once or twice. What happened? In my younger life. Well, I had to go once to the local clinic. Do you remember the clinic mm-hmm. where you'd get your teeth pulled? Yeah. We hadn't the money to go to the dentist. That was the problem, Louise. So we went to the clinic. I right. had to go to the local clinic, okay? Okay. And um, there was a lady dentist. And unfortunately, she went to pull a, one of the molar teeth of mine and the roots were twisted. She got it half out and couldn't shift it anymore. And I was in agony with it half in, half out. She had to give the doorman a shout to come in and he pulled the tooth. No way. Yes, now that's many moons ago and I don't want to frighten anybody it's a lot easier today and you can be uh, sedated etc and it, there's a lot many many advances there. but it leaves its mark do you know what I'm saying yeah, it yeah, does leave its mark yeah, you, as it's, and you know I had another sort of difficult one as well uh, I have funny teeth I have shocking teeth to be honest I'd love to get them all out in a whole new set of those white gnashers you know those people you see with the yeah, yeah. shining white teeth mm, they blind mm, you they blind you you know those people that blind you with a smile and <laughs> the Americans the Osmond smile the Donny Osmond smile you know I don't have they that they smell a mouthwash they call me mellow yellow you know your t- but your <laughs> teeth are naturally yellow in colour you know they that are. they yeah. are that is the truth about it but, healthier um, teeth are yellower seemingly yeah. I'd love to have them occasions. all out and a new set of choppers how about that They'd mm. want to put me asleep for a fortnight and wake me up with all the all the new ones in. Have you still got all your wisdom teeth? People would say mm-hmm. I never had a wisdom tooth. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I have, I have, yeah, I have my wisdom teeth. Yeah, I have indeed. They are there for sure. But I have that much metal in me mouth. <laughs> You're like a magnet to the oh fridge. Oh my God, there's that much mercury in this head. No wonder at times it goes astray. Anyway, we diverge. We uh, go down a different road on late lunch day. Coming up shortly, we go to East Coast Cookery School and Miss Tara Walker where she's cooking Nick's fish. Yes, we're back at East Coast Cookery School. Tara Walker cooking flavours of the Boyne Valley this year on late lunch. And today, well... I'm in heaven, aren't I? It's fish all the way, thanks to Nick's Fish from Ashbourne. 
Absolutely, Jerry. As any of your listeners who listen regularly in or any of my customers here at the cookery school know, fish is my number one food. We would, as a family, eat fish at least four nights a week for our dinner. It's my favourite thing of all to cook. So many different types of fish, whether it's a flat fish like a John Dory over to clams, mussels, etc. I was very excited to get the opportunity to do the whole slot this month just on fish. So Nick very kindly brought us some beautiful prawns, which were landed down in Dunmore East, I think he said, but but they're actually from a Clara Head boat. And then he brought some gorgeous plates as well, which looks really, really lovely and fresh. And then, of course, the beautiful wild pink sea bream, which he'll tell you a little bit more about. So I'm going to get started on uh, the prawns. So as I was saying to you before, for me, fish is the ultimate healthy fast food. And this couldn't be an easier recipe, really. It's a beautiful day today, so we're going to throw them on the barbie. So a few prawns on the barbie. What I'm doing here, they're obviously whole prawns, or langoustine, really, Dublin Bay prawns. So they're actually a real delicacy. They're part of the lobster family, really. And what I love to do with them is just slit the tail. So just starting at the back of the head here and down with my knife, slitting the tail open. And the reason for this is I often think people are put off eating prawns in the shell, no matter how tasty they are. And it's because they have to fiddle about with the kind of greasy sort of prawn, you know, when it's been put in a nice dressing or whatever. So what we're doing here is we're opening it out. And when it goes on the barbecue, it'll open out even more. And it means you can actually use a fork just to take the flesh out. So you're not kind of getting your hands all dirty, which I know when you're a cook, it doesn't really matter. But if you're having a dinner party or people over, you know, people just don't want to get all messy. So I have a load of them here, which I have just cut in a little dish. And I'm going to make up a little kind of drizzle to go over them. So, Jerry, to go in with the prawns, we have some nice, finely chopped garlic here. And I have some chilies as well, which I've just kind of sliced roughly, some fresh red chili. And then I'm going to get a little bit of lemon zest as well, as always. Wash your citrus fruits, whether it's lemon, lime or orange, even for a drink, because they've tended to travel a long way. And I'm going to use my zester not to go too deep into the skin. Just take the top layer and this should give us the flavour. What's great about using the zest instead of the juice is that it won't dry out the prawns. So the juice can sometimes, the acidity can kind of dry out. Look, with the prawns, they're only going on the barbecue for minutes. But in other dishes, you know, with chicken or something, if it's sitting in a marinade, it can dry it out. So a little bit of our local rapeseed oil going into this then. And going quite generously. Obviously, olive oil is kind of more traditional on this, but I actually love using rapeseed oil on the barbecue because it has a higher burning point. And a little bit of salt going in now. And then we're just going to drizzle that over the prawns. And I'm going to keep half of it back because obviously it kind of cooks away a little bit to nothing on the barbecue. So then it's nice to have a fresh bit to drizzle over as well. So let's pop that on. Just making sure you don't touch your spoon off the raw prawns and then putting it back into the, the bowl of the marinade. We've said that before on the show, just around barbecuing and food safety, you know, just to be careful not to, if you're keeping marinade back to serve at the very end, that the raw doesn't go into it. And we're going to bring them out to the barbecue now out into the beautiful Irish summer sunshine. Do you feel that heat? Why would you go anywhere else in the world? I know. If only we could be guaranteed this Uh, all the time. Um, So, Jerry, I have my barbecue on. You can see it's really, really hot here. It's at 250 degrees. Look, I have a gas barbecue and it gives me the, the temperature on it. If you're working on a charcoal barbecue, the rule of thumb, as always, is that you can only keep your hand an inch from the surface for like a second or so, and then you know you're good to go. Also, you want to hear a good sizzle. I have my little silicone brush here just for handiness sake in case I want to rebaste with the um, the nice kind of drizzle we've put on. So let's hear a sizzle. Do we hear a sizzle? You definitely yes. hear a sizzle. So we're good to go then. And we're just going to very casually throw them on. I'll turn them around a couple of times on the heat. 
And look, they're so lovely and fresh. Look how gorgeous that flesh is there. It's so soft. Very excited about these. And let's close the lid for a couple of minutes just to keep the heat in. Again, if you're working on a charcoal barbecue that doesn't have a lid, you know, it's fine. Don't worry about it. But leave it open and but make sure your heat is really good and hot. If you're working on a charcoal barbecue, make sure the coals are completely white and red hot. How long are you going to give those there? Because the heat is intense and they're not that big. Exactly. It'll only be five minutes at the most. And will you turn halfway? Yeah, we're going to turn now in a minute or so. So off come the prawns from the barbecue. So Jerry, yeah, what's very handy when you've slit them open like this is you can kind of use your tongs to open up a little bit and see that it's totally cooked through. Yes. And you know it's cooked through when it's gone completely opaque. They're sort of a little bit translucent when they're raw still, but they go opaque and totally white and then you know they're ready. So let's just drizzle a little bit more of this nice dressing over them that we made earlier. It Just to remind your listeners, it's a little bit of chilli, garlic and lemon zest. Just drizzle it over and then I have some flat leaf parsley. You could use any herb you want really there. Um, I just have some flat leaf parsley in the garden and we're just going to pop that over. And that to me, sitting in the garden or on your patio or whatever with a little glass of white wine is just simple fast food that's really healthy and heavenly. So Jerry, as you can see, it's really easy just to get your fork in. You don't get your hands covered. Have a little taste there. Thank you very much. Tara doing the needful there. Hmm. I could just live on this day after day after day. It's beautiful. So could I, Jerry. Absolutely. And the good thing about this, look how lovely that uh, flesh is there. Let me have a taste myself. Mm. Very important not to overcook. So that's our first dish today on the barbecue. Those beautiful prawns in the shell. Our second dish, remind us again what this is. We have a lovely fillet of place and we're going to serve it up with a lovely chilli coriander and lemon dressing. Okay, the pan goes on there and you have it on a high heat, so you're going to warm the pan up. You have some flour on a plate here with your seasoning. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm just going to dip the place into some flour very uh, gently. But as always, seasoning each step of the way. I have a little bit of our Oriole sea salt here and a bit of pepper gone into the flour there. And I'm just going to dry off my fillet of place here because I don't want to create a kind of paste with the water that's on it. So just dry it off a bit. So important to dry your fillets before you dip them in the flour. Absolutely, because otherwise it just kind of creates a paste and that's not the desired effect. But, you know, it just what we're looking for here is a nice crunch. Uh, not really a crunch, but a slight crispness on the outside from the flour. So if you leave it very wet, it's not going to get that. So let us dip into the flour. We're not like we're not putting a really heavy layer of flour on, so just shake off the excess. But again, just making sure it's all totally coated in the flour. And next up, I'm actually going to butter the fish as if it were a slice of toast. Okay, just a nice little thin layer like you would if it was your toast in the morning. It's great because the butter is quite quite soft there. If your butter is not soft, make sure you just soften it down the microwave or something a little bit. And it's only going on the flesh side, okay? So I have the pan on. Again, the usual rule of thumb. Just making sure you can keep your hand over about an inch from the surface for only a split second. You want to hear a little bit of a sizzle. Do we hear it? Just placing the fish on gently. Of course. Yes. Why I like to just put the butter on the flesh side and cook it flesh side down is I can control how brown it gets or how golden brown it gets on that side. It doesn't really matter if it's a little slightly over or under on the skin side because you're not really going to eat that bit now. So flesh side down when pan frying flat fish is the rule. Absolutely. Well, not the rule, but it's a tip, I suppose, mm. because what that does is it allows you to control how golden brown it goes. 
the dressing. So, Jerry, this time I've grated the garlic rather than chop it because I just like the texture of it a little bit more because we're not cooking it out any further. I have some chilli there gone in as well, some red chilli. So we're kind of using a few of the same ingredients, which is handy for your listeners because you get such a different result from them. But if you go out and buy a bit of chilli and a bit of garlic and lemon, you know, you can get a few different dishes from it. So I have a little bit of salt gone in there now. Next up, a little squeeze of lemon juice. And then I have some coriander. I actually washed and spun the coriander. And I'm just going to give it a very rough chop here. And you could use flat leaf parsley if you don't like coriander. I know a lot of people don't really like coriander. There are actually receptors on your taste buds that make it taste sort of soapy. So flat leaf parsley is equally nice, really, to be honest. Uh, Just be used flat leaf parsley with the prawns. So just have something different. Very, very rough chop. Then into the bowl. And then I'm just going to finish off with a little bit of extra virgin olive oil. And it's handy to make it while you're waiting for the fish because it can sit for a moment or two and just infuse nicely. Have a little taste of your dressing as well. Just check the balance. You're looking for the balance between a little bit of acidity from the lemon, but also some nice kind of flavour from the other ingredients as well. So just have a little taste and see that you're happy with it. Mm. That's just right. I'm happy with that. So let's have a look at the underside, which is the flesh side. How is it looking? Perfect. Just turn it over very briefly. And you see this, Jerry. Watch this moment. It's doming up at the centre. Can you see that? Curls up. Yeah. So you know that it's almost there then. And what I usually like to do is just let it finish kind of cooking and resting a little bit in the warm pan. A minute or so. Is that all you're going to do there on the skin side at this stage? Exactly. Because it's mainly cooked on the flesh side. You see... Going back to what we were saying about cooking it flesh side down, depending on the thickness of the piece of fish, if it's a very thick piece, you're going to need to give it longer on the skin side. But if it's quite a thin piece, I cooked it mainly on the flesh side. Place at the ready. Absolutely. So, Jerry, you can obviously serve this as a whole piece if you want, or just take the flesh off. If it's a very big fillet, you know, one, one might do two people. So you can very carefully just take that nice... So we have beautiful soft flesh at the, at the centre and a little bit of crispness from the butter and flour on the top really 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 tasty sometimes i just serve it as a whole piece either whatever you want i love the skin well perfect you can work away there <laughs> leave the skin for me you can um, have the rest no oh, i'm seriously poor old daisy my dog would be deprived but that's fine. <laughs> tough luck daisy this evening i'm just going to drizzle a nice little bit of our dressing over now so look i didn't do it this evening but what i normally serve with this is just a nice bit of just maybe some potato wedges something quite simple because you've quite a lot of flavor here so i usually just serve it up with maybe some broccoli or green beans or something like that and then the plain potatoes because actually you have a lot of flavor in here so get your chops around that jerry winner winner fishy dinner (laughs) what do you think jerry oh it's beautiful yeah, isn't it lovely? It's just very simple, but very because it's so fresh as well. You don't need to do a whole lot to it. What do you think, Nick? Nick, I, I, I know you didn't overcook it, which is great. It's, it's easy enough overcooked place. You know, it gets too 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 puffy. That's lovely. That's lovely. You know. Yeah, it really is gorgeous. It's a marvelous, marvelous dish. But fresh produce as well is the key, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, absolutely. Fish? I mean, when you taste that, it just melts in your mouth. But just going back to what Nick said there about not overcooking it. That's why I cooked it with the flesh side down, so I can control it better. And then when I turn it on to the skin side, whether I get the skin really crispy or not, it doesn't matter because the flesh is just right. Short break and it's back to East Coast Cookery School today where it's fish all the way with Nick's fish. Yes, Tara cooks flavours of the Boyne Valley and today I'm joined by Nicholas Lynch and he is the man supplying the beautiful fish to us here today in East Coast Cookery School from Nick's Fish who are based in Ashbourne. Tell us about you and this business. It goes back, what, to the early 1980s? I was fishing and I just um, 
just decided to get into the fish business. I it's, it's a lot so long back now that it kind of I kind of I forget how the transition was made. You know, we have a factory in Ashburn. We process fish. We've about thirty five people working there. We supply restaurants, hotels general catering industry we have a retail shop in the ashburn town center in ashburn the Boyne valley region we'd be the only seafood processor with origin green and organic certification so we, we we try to do a good job the fish now that we have today i can tell you exactly where everything comes from so we have uh, we have some prawns came off a boat called the rose of sharon which happens to be from Clarehead, and they landed into cork we have place from the endeavor that's a hoth i think and that landed into dunmore east the pink bream, I'm not actually 100% sure whether the pink bream came off the Rosa Sharon or the Endeavour. I'm guessing because it's a bottom fish that it came off the uh, Rosa Sharon. I could find out later on if I had to. If I had to find, tell you where it came from, I could, you know. It is a pink bream, which is very unusual. I brought it with us because um, it's the first one I've seen uh, this year. You get wild bream every now and then, but you get the number of pink bream. They're really Mediterranean, North African coast, so... That guy is, uh, he's probably, we're roasting and he's freezing. He's probably going, kind of, did I go a little far here, you know? He swum off course. Oh, he swam, no, it was cut off, say, somewhere off between, off Wexford, Cork, Waterford Coast. But, uh, so, Nicholas, you're telling me you know where these fish are fished oh, yeah, for and where they come from exactly. Yeah. And they're landed and cared for really, really well. And the produce we have here today that Tara is working away with is in tip-top condition. Yes, it is. Yeah, 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 it is, yeah. We got that this morning in the early enough hours of the morning. We've been landed last night in the various... Uh, Dunmore East and Cork, in this case, as the case may be, you know. And that's essential with fish, that it, it comes is, yeah. quickly to you. Yeah, it is, yeah, essential. You can see by the prawns there, mm. they're like... Uh, they're from a Clotterhead boat, ironically enough, landed in Cork. Yeah. But boats move around, you see, so... Um, we would do everything from big contract caterers to... Um, Small, small, small restaurants, small cafe type restaurants. We, we do the whole, the whole, the whole spectrum. We mainly were, mainly were Leinster. We do a bit in Ulster, a bit in, a bit in, a bit in Munster. We wouldn't tend to go. We try not to do the whole country because fish is a product that doesn't really like being dragged all over the place, you know. So we try to keep it as short as possible, to keep as, li- as little travel on the fish as possible, you know. And the shop, of course, in Ashbourne. If you want to pop in there, you'll be looked yeah, after yeah, with lovely shop, fish. Yeah, we have lovely fish in there. Like we, we, we pick it, we pick out the fish for it every day. And um, like because we, we because it's our fish, we, it, it misses a stage. So uh, generally, uh, say a supermarket fish would have to go to a central processing. I'm not. We we we, we shorten the line completely. We probably shorten it by three four days. Thanks for bringing us this beautiful produce today. And you're staying with us, of course, because we're going to watch Tara here work our magic with your beautiful produce from Nick's Fish. So, Tara, we move on to our third fish dish today, and it's Mediterranean-style roast whole sea bream. Yeah, what a treat, Jerry. As we heard from Nick earlier, it's quite a an exotic thing to have, really. So it's a real treat. First up, I'm going to go with my potatoes. So I just have little salad potatoes here. Layer it up with some vegetables. I have some courgette here as well, just sliced, and pop those in. And then next up, to kind of create a little bit of a sauce, we're going to add some olives, some red wine, some soy sauce, and a little bit of water. So here are my olives gone in. I like Kalamata olives for this job. I just think they have better flavour. Um, than your average sort of you know black olive obviously they're stoned as well so into that then we're going to add our little bit of tomato puree passato would be fine if you had it a little bit of homemade tomato sauce if you had it you know we make them for the pizzas here with the children so i often have a bit left over but today i'm using tomato puree a little bit of soy sauce going in just a few drops of it a little bit of wine now just a splash of it so this is a very very casual kind of easy thing there's no major sort of you know techniques in here and a little splash of water now 
So what that's going to do is, you can see the bottom of my tray here. It's quite a big tray. It fits all the vegetables um, laid out. They're not all on top of each other. And we're going to sit the fish on top. But after a little while then, we're going to come back and we're going to add some cherry tomatoes in as well and a little bit of basil. But just make sure you get, you know, your garlic, your tomato puree, your wine. They're the things that kind of add that lovely depth of flavour into the equation, you know. So here is the beautiful pink bream here. And I'm going to just slice it very, very gently. So you're putting slash marks, basically, exactly. with a knife yes. into the side of the fish down. The fish is cleaned out already. Exactly. It's been gutted and cleaned out by Nick. So we're going to lift it then onto the tray. And I'm going to add a few little knobs of butter um, onto the skin and a little bit of salt and pepper. And as you can see, the tray is big enough to hold everything in place for me. You know, that there's plenty of space for the vegetables to cook and for the fish to sit on top. And then a little bit of salt and pepper... And then we're ready to go into the oven. Give it about 25 minutes. Well, actually, this is a really big piece. So we might give it a little bit longer. And we'll add the cherry tomatoes in just for the last kind of 10 minutes or so. And they give a lovely sweetness to the, to the whole thing. I'm using some nice uh, crunchy mold and sea salt for this job. Just because I think it'll give a nice crispness to the skin. So there we go. And you can pop a little bit of your seasoning onto your vegetables in the bottom of the tray as well. And let's get into the oven, Jerry. And like that, no cover on it at all, the fish sitting on top of the vegetables in the tray there. Exactly. So I'm not putting a cover on it. I mean, look, if, this, if the skin is getting a little bit too cooked, I might put some uh, tin foil onto it. But at the moment, let's just leave it open. And in it goes. And there we'll we say go. goodbye for about 25 minutes to half an hour. Exactly. And we'll check it in a little while and see if it's time to put the cherry tomatoes in. Two down, one to go. And one to go is right because it's ready. If you remember earlier on, we uh, popped the bream into the oven and Tara's about to take him out. Here we go. Well, when we were just off air, well, you guys were out at the barbecue having a chat while I was doing all the work. And uh, I came in. What a dig, what a dig. <laughs> what I did was um, I popped the cherry tomatoes in because it was nearly ready. It was nearly ready to go. And what I did also in the last couple of minutes was I just took the bream out to let it rest a little bit because it is important, like you've just tasted with the place there, it's important to let it rest. So, you know, my rule of thumb is kind of rest for half the cooking time. And whilst it wasn't half the cooking time there, you know, it was at least uh, 15 minutes rested there. Just plate that up because... It's beautiful and oh, the vegetables. You can see the sauce has become lovely mm. and kind of um, thickened and reduced. Mm. The vegetables have that lovely coating on them. And I just want to get a bit of basil because this is quite rich now. So a little bit of basil just to freshen it up. So, Jerry, here I just have my nice bit of fresh basil just to sort of brighten everything up a little bit. Because the flavours are quite rich with the red wine and the tomato in there and the olives and everything. So just a nice little bit of basil just strewn over it uh, just to give a bit of freshness. And the aroma of that basil there is just fantastic, isn't it? It really is. You're just taking the the flesh off the bream. Just gently removing it. I want to leave the spine intact. So I'll take it off one side first and then I'll turn it over and take it off the rest. So I'm just using the little incisions that I'd made earlier as a guide to kind of lift up the pieces. And you might get a few bones. It's very difficult with a whole piece of fish like this not to get a few bones in it. So don't be afraid of that. And then let's just top with some of our nice potato courgette tomato mixture that has our sauce as well and have a little taste there we go tuck in guys lovely 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 sorry for the delay (laughs) but there's a reason there's been a little bit of silence there i have to say that is one hell of a fish isn't it absolutely beautiful the flesh is meaty but delicate you know and because we cooked it on the bone there's a little bit more margin for error you know at the place it was very important to only just cook it 
But because it's on the bone, it had a bit of oil on it. You know, if you did leave it by accident an extra five or ten minutes in the oven, it's going to be fine. Also, resting it was a good thing to do because, as you can see, it was resting for a good while there, but it hasn't gone cold, but it has kind of just relaxed a little bit. The sauce, I have to say, the potatoes, the tomatoes, the olives, all combined with the fish there, it's a wonderful combination. Isn't it? There's lots of lovely flavour in the sauce. And as I said, like, look, play around with what you put into the sauce. As long as you kind of keep, you know, your garlic, tomato and wine in there, anything else can go in. And I think this is a great dish for both summer and winter. Like, you could serve this up with a big green salad now. Um, or in winter, maybe some mashed potato or rice or something like that, just to sort of give you a bit more carby uh, dinner. Nicholas, you're gone very quiet. Um, lovely, lovely, yeah. Yeah, it's beautiful, isn't it? Um, yeah. It's a gorgeous fish. It's rare, this uh, pink bream, but wonderful. Uh, next time I get one, I'm not giving this, I'm, I'm keeping it myself, right? <laughs> I ain't surprised. As I said, we get the odd wild bream, but pink bream is very, very rare. Mm. Rare here, anyhow, in this waters, you know. So. Well, thank God we've had a rarity in East Coast Cookery School today. Uh, Nicholas Lynch, thank you from Nick's Fish. Thank you indeed for supplying the wonderful fish to us here today. You've just made it. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thanks sir. indeed. And to Tara Walker, as usual, for weaving her magic here in East Coast Cookery School. It's been a real pleasure. You've been in your element today with the fish, I know. Yeah, absolutely. There were a lot of basic recipes the same there. Like, I didn't have to do a very big shop. I just went to the farm shop here in Termonfeck and Forgefield to get the veg. And I didn't really need to get anything else. And yet there was such a different result from each recipe, even though a lot of the raw ingredients were similar. And thank you so much to Nick. That was a, a real treat as well to have the um, pink sea bream, the wild pink sea bream. And for me, fish is always a winner for me. Recipes from eastcoastcookeryschool.ie and Tara, thank you so much indeed for hosting us again in the month of July. We'll see you next month. Thanks, Jerry. Great to see you as always. Mike Denver Friday, the Wolf Tones on Saturday and on Sunday it's Derek Ryan. You won't whack that across the country this bank holiday weekend. That's the Farney Country Music Festival. Check it out. Go there. Carrick Macross is the place to be in Dundalk on Sunday. Don't forget the big Dundalk Motor Show and Family Day taking place at Dundalk Stadium. And if you're into your four wheels, you want to get along there. If you have children, take them along too. There's lots of activities for children and anyone under 12 goes free there. That's this Sunday, the 4th at Dundalk Stadium. And just to mention that movie, Garabandal, uh, Only God Knows, last weekend sold out in Dundalk in the Omniplex had to turn people away. It's on again from tomorrow, the 2nd to the 4th, at the Omniplex, Dundalk Retail Park, in a relief road. Uh, get along there if you'd like to see that inspiring movie. Now, Louise, you better tell them the words you've picked today in the Signature Furniture Competition. Don't forget uh, their annual stock disposal sale. It goes on till Monday at 6 o'clock at the store, Dramiskin Castle, Bellingham, and they'll look after you for everything you need for the house and home. Today, here with the three clues, three words we're looking for. OK, Louise, on your starter orders, here we go. go. Old Mother Hubbard went to the... Cupboard. To fetch her poor doggy a bone. Cupboard was the first one. Second one, they threw everything at them, but the kitchen... Sink. Sink is right. And number three, night-night, sleep tight, don't let the... Bed. Bugs bite. Yes, bed we were looking for. And you said that gave you shivers when you, when I even read it out there. When I was a child, I just thought it was terrifying. I'd be all night, I couldn't sleep. I'd be looking for bed bugs all night. <laughs> <laughs> and you think about it crawling over you like as a child oh, it's, the thing. it's a terrible it's a, saying it's a terror isn't it yeah I'm going to say it again night night sleep tight don't let the bed 
the uh, bed bugs by. I can't hear you. Yeah, that, turn off. Take those heads off you there if you don't want to be annoyed. But anyway, they were the answer. We're looking for cupboard, sink and bed. And thank you so much. We've been inundated with entries on WhatsApp and text. Almost everybody got every one of them right today. And we turned the wheel as usual, put them all in, picked one out. And the name that's come out today is Patrick Kelly from Afton Drive in Dundalk. Well done to you, Patrick. That prize is yours this afternoon on Late Lunch. And enjoy. It's a 446 800 pocket sprung mattress. And it'll be delivered to you as well by the wonderful people at Signature Furniture. Tomorrow's prize. Don't miss it, folks. €800 it's worth tomorrow. Four foot six double sized divan set, fabric basin headboard, and pocket sprung mattress. 800 euro. Same format tomorrow on late lunch. Make sure you're in tomorrow with us to, to uh, be in with a chance to win that wonderful prize. Up next on late lunch, we're going to hear a bit about the FLA coming to draw to the 11th to the 18th of August and a brand new festival. Puka, stay with us. Fla Kilnaheron coming to Drogheda the 11th to the 18th of August. It won't be long now because we are in the month of lunacy. And on the line with me this afternoon is the chairperson of the Loud Vintners Federation, Colette Nugent. Afternoon, Colette. Good afternoon, Jerry. On a beautiful summery day here today. Isn't it just gorgeous? It'll do your heart good. Now, you're doing a lot of people's hearts good because I have to say the FLA couldn't or wouldn't happen without the support of, of course, Loud County Council, the wonderful support they give it, and the traders and vintners in the area and many other people besides. The uh, vintners, you're back in FLA substantially again this year. To what extent, Colette? We are. We're back in it substantially again this year and we're delighted to do so. We are giving over in excess of 90,000 this year. Um, We still have some sponsorship to come in and get a final figure on that. But this evening actually is the launch of the uh, Drogheda and District because we have a lot of publicans from the district of in the Drogheda area also supporting this. Um, So that launch is tonight in Scholars House Hotel. Um, And like as you said, like any of these major events, we can't do it without sponsorship. Um, you know, obviously, as County Council, very kindly, they're footing the bill ultimately. But without the likes of Lola Robinson and other people working tirelessly to get this fantastic event to our town, it's not possible. You know, and there's a lot of voluntary um, organisations that are working tirelessly. Not just the publicans. Yes, you know, the publicans, we've definitely put in a huge investment, not just in our premises, but staff and stock and everything else. But... We're delighted to be a part of it. Isn't it exciting? It's marvellous. Again, imagine we have it year two. It's fabulous. It is great, and it is important to mention all the volunteers and the people who brought it here in the first place. Absolutely. It's been a whole big yeah. team effort. But listen, Colette, come on. You're being generous, I know, but you're going to coin it over the week of the FLA. Well, you know, there were some people who done it very well last year, and there were some that didn't do so well and put in an investment. But still, they put their civic hat on and they raised the challenge and they met us. And, you know, we're really thrilled about that. But, you know, sometimes the, the, the concentration is too much really on drink. And it's not about drink. It's very much a family-oriented event. And, you know, with cultism, you have to be very conscious of that. But, yes, you know, we work hand in hand. I suppose you couldn't really have a successful flower without the pubs. But at the same time, if they didn't bring the flower to us, you know, uh, there's not a lot we could do without that. But, yes... But this year we're really concentrating. There's an awful lot of events on more this year 
you got the gist of it there. Apologies for that. But you know what uh, she's been saying there. Big investment on behalf of the, the trade there. But it's going to be one hell of a week for business in the area. And an enjoyable week for all the people who will come to the uh, Drogheda area for the flower and will have a safe and enjoyable time. While we're on the, the subject of uh, festivals, and it is the second and final year of the flower, which is huge for the North East, just not the Drogheda, but it's the greater area as well, benefits, announced this week a brand new festival for later in the year. It's called the Puka Festival. And it's estimated that in the northeast, this is going to be a huge money generator as well for the economy. Joining me to tell me about this one is Azita Siri. Hello, Azita. Hello, Jerry. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for taking our call. Now, people are very familiar uh, around the Halloween time, uh, the Spirits of Mead Festival that has been so successful for many a day. Is Puka superseding that? Oh, absolutely not. If anything, it's complimenting. What we envision Puka to be is a kind of a spectacular fun and, of course, otherworldly new festival celebrating Ireland as the original birthplace of Halloween. It will be vibrant and contemporary, but strongly rooted in Irish tradition. Um, I suppose, as you say, the Spirits of Mead have been long in operation, but this is a brand new festival to uh, Fulge Ireland's portfolio and will be delivered in partnership with Mead and Louth County Councils to claim ownership of this internationally celebrated occasion and to tell the story of Halloween's origins in Irish and Celtic traditions with a view to encouraging more international visitors to visit Ireland during October and November. So when does it start and end? It coincides, I take, with the Halloween festival, yes? Absolutely does, in that it starts on the 31st of October and runs to the 2nd of November. Now, obviously, the Spirits of Mead, many of the events that are contained within that initiative take place over a, a, a longer period and yeah. that are spread out. But this Puka Festival is, I suppose, marketed towards a very different demographic. But as I say, is complemented by the events around the Spirits of Mead. The Spirits of Mead ties in, I suppose, what we call the family audience, mm. whereas Puka in itself is something quite different, which again ties back to the, 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 the authentic and the, the origin of what we call Samhain itself. Just to kind of give you a little bit of background, I suppose, Jerry, to, to set the scene on why, why this is unique in itself, is that the idea for this particular festival emerged from a, an, an initiative run by Fulcha Ireland in 2016 called What's the Big Idea? And it was a national call. This festival was one of the shortlisted ideas brought forward for feasibility. And this feasibility confirmed an exciting new opportunity for Ireland in its, as a whole. So we're all familiar with, with Halloween in Ireland. Yep. But did, I, I'm not sure whether many people know that the origins of Halloween is in the Irish and Celtic tradition of Samhain. Now, you guys are, are very familiar, obviously, with all the, the events that are happening around it. But it marks the end of the harvest season and the beginning of winter and the time when the boundary between this world and the other world pinned, allowing the spirits or the Ashi to pass through. Now, we, we may know of, of all this, but you shouldn't take our word for it, is what we're telling people, because evidence gathered from archaeology digs and legends and myths have all been examined so that this one unified narrative around the authentic origins of Halloween can be created, which gives us this significant opportunity to claim authentic ownership of Halloween. But so, I suppose significantly, it allows us to differentiate the perception of what modern Halloween looks like and to move away from the Americana version, which is kind of the dressing up of Spider-Man and Batman 
And it allows us to develop a confidence proposition which Ireland can stand over and deliver to an interested and believing audience, which, of course, for us, it's so important to have a global reach in the in that respect. I'm delighted to hear that because uh, bring it back to its roots and clock that we know in County Meath is where it's uh, believed extensively actually Halloween began but here's the thing about this festival I just look at uh, you know the centres or the hubs as you call them so it's going to hub in Athboy in Trim and Drogheda at the the mouth of the Boyne. That's exactly right that's exactly we have three festival hubs as part of Puka this year and we're delighted to deliver the programme in each of these hubs obviously in partnership with Meath and Allowed County Councils which have been integral to this process not only our strategic partners but have been very much a part of this from the very offset as part of planning and project meeting and it's very exciting the programme that we're developing for each of these these, uh, festival hubs as it were. So a, a new, a, a, a literally a new festival developed upon uh, after a competition with an idea and now to be brought to life this year. The, the, the Conservative estimate is that it would bring in potentially uh, in excess of 10 million. Is, is that a realistic figure? Well, actually, yes, that's exactly what we're estimating. Our market research tells us that overseas visitors are motivated to visit Ireland to t- attend authentic Irish festivals, such as this Puka Festival. We already know about the success of St. Patrick's Day and, of course, New Year's Festival in Dublin. We were looking to develop something that aligns with our strategic imperatives of regionality and seasonality. We're investing approximately $1.5 million to develop Puka as a world-class festival that does position Ireland as the home of Halloween internationally. And we do believe that by 2020, it has the potential to motivate 100,000 overseas visitors to come to Ireland and to generate, as I said, approximately $12 million in revenue for the local region. Oh, that's uh, really good news and maybe even better news in the context of what may happen in the Houses of Parliament across the water over the next uh, number of months. Exactly. This is something we hope that people can get excited about again. Absolutely. We can absolutely claim. Look, it's great to uh, talk to you today and introduce it and tell people what will be happening. And that is to look forward to, uh, as we go to the August holiday, around the time of Halloween as well, the 31st to the 2nd of November, 31st of October. Azita, thank you so much for letting us know all about that. Thanks for having me, Derry. Not at all. Take care of yourself. Bye-bye. That's Azita Siri there from the new Puka Festival. You'll be hearing more about it, I promise you. Anyway, that's a lot on late launch, almost a lot for uh, for today. Just to mention in the context of the flag again, that launches tonight with the Vintners and they, they're handing over the cheque and sponsorship and scholars. And also there's a beautiful calendar. Uh, Des Clinton popped one into me from the Drogheda Photographic Club uh, that will be on sale during the flag. It's out there at the moment. Images from last year and it's absolutely beautiful, I have to say. It's €10 Euro and it's widely available across Drogheda and the greater Drogheda area and I just want to remind people about that it'd be lovely to have it memories memories as we head into the new year in uh, less than six months time at this stage see you tomorrow for late lunch Friday half one uh, and have a lovely Thursday evening and we leave you with Dusty Springfield yes son of a preacher man I love this one see you tomorrow Son. And when his daddy would visit, he'd come along. When they gather around and started talking, 
Passing Billy would take me walking Out through the backyard we go walking Then he look into my eyes Lord knows to my surprise The only one who could ever reach me Was the son of a preacher man The only boy who could ever teach me Was the son of a preacher man You see what he was Yes he was Talking to me, you come and tell me everything is alright. You kiss and tell me everything's alright. Can I get away again tonight? The only one who could ever reach me was the son of a preacher man. The only boy who could ever teach me was the son of a preacher man. Yes, he was. He was. The Late Lunch, brought to you by Blackstone Motors, setting the standards higher for award-winning customer service you can trust. Visit your regional dealer for Renault and Dacia in the Northeast for exclusive offers with low-as-can-be APR finance and finance arranged within four hours. Dare to live? Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.